America was built on the stories that were handed down from campfire or one Sunday meal at a time. All of these particular tales are based in truth, but some may have gotten a little fictional as time went on. Here's just a few narratives of names we've probably heard of before, but as time passes and the art of storytelling gets lost, these names and their stories become forgotten. So let's decipher fact from fiction, myth from legend, and bring these curious tales from the past into the present once again. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Best known for saving the lives of his passengers at the cost of his own, ballads and movies were written about his courage and honor. The ballad of Casey Jones was inspired by a real person. Born in Missouri in 1863, John Luther Jones loved trains. When his family moved to Casey, Kentucky, where he got his nickname, he got a job working for the railroad when he was in his teens. He started as a laborer and then a telegrapher. Even though he excelled in this position, he hated being left behind as the giant iron beasts would rumble past his tiny stationary office. He continued in the railroad industry when he moved to Jackson, Tennessee, where he met his wife and they were married in 1886. He was promoted to flagman, then brakeman, and then to fireman, which was the number two position. But finally, in 1891, the coveted position, he was promoted to engineer. He was working on his freight trains for the Illinois Railroad Company and became an expert in his field. He was recognized by his peers as a gifted locomotive engineer, one of the best in the business. He was mostly used to working with freight trains, but when the opportunity came up to shuttle passengers to and from the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, he gladly accepted. Not long after this experience, he was able to switch back and forth from freight to passenger with ease, and his reputation grew as the engineer you could set your watch by. He was very strict with himself on his promptness and would sometimes take unnecessary risks to keep his reputation untarnished. As the story goes, the one that launched Casey Jones into legendary status, there are subtle differences with each retelling, but as always, I try to keep as close to the truth as I can find. He had just gotten into Memphis with his delivery at 9 p.m. on April 29, 1900. Another engineer had called in, and Casey Jones and his fireman, a close friend, Sim Webb, decided to take the passenger train to its destination. They departed from the Memphis station at 12.50 a.m. and were already 75 minutes behind schedule to get the six cars of passengers to Canton, Mississippi. Even with the six-plus cars, the train was running light, so that meant they could drive a little bit faster to make up for lost time on the straight sections of the track. 
Jones was familiar with the route and its scheduled stops and knew the speed-restrictive curves and the straightaways. By the time the engine made it to Durant, Mississippi, it was only five minutes behind. Jones was extremely happy with their progress, commenting to his firemen, quote, Sims, the old girl's got her dancing slippers on tonight, end quote. With only 32 miles left until they reached Canton, with mostly fast track ahead, he was feeling pretty confident that he could make the 405 scheduled time. However, what he didn't know that while the trains were being moved and rerouted on the same track that he would be entering, one of the trains blew an air hose, locking the brakes of the four remaining train cars on the main track, the very track that Casey Jones was pulling into. Jones, at this point, was running about 75 miles per hour and couldn't see the upcoming station. There was a mile and a half long curve blocking his view, and as they rounded the curve, Sims was the first one to be able to see red lights of the caboose directly in front of them and yelled at Casey. There's something on the main line. Casey Jones told his friend to jump to safety, which he did, being knocked unconscious upon his landing. Only about 300 feet from impact, Casey Jones maneuvered his train to drop from 75 miles per hour to about 35 by initiating reverse throttle and slamming on the air brakes. He pulled on the train's whistle to warn anyone within hearing distance. The train, even though it was only going 35, managed to plow through the wooden caboose, a train car of hay, a train car of corn, and halfway through a train car of timber before jumping the track. Casey Jones himself was the only fatality. Because he chose to stay with the train at its helm, he managed to save the lives of every passenger. Some barely even woke from their sleeping cars upon impact. The story goes that they had to pry his hands from the train whistle and the brake handle when they retrieved his body from the wreckage. His watch stopped at the time of impact, 3.52. His body was transported to his home in Jackson, Tennessee on the following day, and his funeral services were held at the same church he was married in 14 years prior. His wife mourned him for the rest of her life. He was survived by three children and immortalized by many. Side story on Casey Jones. Another interesting story attributed to this hero that solidifies his character is one that he saved a child from the tracks. The story goes, They could see a group of children crossing the tracks, so they tugged on the whistle and most of them scurried across. But one little girl was frozen with fear at the oncoming train. Luckily, they had been performing maintenance on the train, so it wasn't going full speed and even with the brakes applied, the train wasn't going to be able to stop in time. He called out to the fellow engineer, Bob Stevenson, to reverse the engine, and Casey Jones climbed onto the engine and onto the cowcatcher. He balanced on the nose of the train and scooped up the little girl to safety. This true-life rescue has been reenacted in several silent films, usually where the hero rescues the damsel in distress tied to the tracks. It was also depicted in the Disney short of The Brave Engineer in 1950, based mostly on the ballad by friend and co-worker Wallace Saunders.
You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. First of all, the entire city was made out of wood. Second, who in their right mind who knows anything about anything in the dairy farming milks a cow at 9 p.m., and thirdly, blaming a woman in her 30s who was cartoonishly depicted as an elderly servant because she was an Irish immigrant when, in the 1870s, more than half of the population of Chicago was foreign-born, is just rude. I'm referring, of course, to Mrs. Catherine O'Leary, the woman who had been accused of starting the Chicago fire in 1871. Prejudices were high at the time against immigrants and religious beliefs, and someone needed to be blamed. The summer was hot and dry. The growing city of Chicago was packed tight with people and buildings. On the evening of October 8, 1871, a barn and shed that bordered an alley was believed to be the source of the fire. This fire was so intense, and thanks to blustery winds from the southwest, that it burned for three days, consumed over three miles, jumping the Chicago River not once, but twice, and left more than a 100,000 residents homeless, killing over 300 in its wake. The only preparation the city had in place for such a thing, the water pumping system, was destroyed early on in the blaze. Still, having only 17 horse-drawn water pumpers to send out, it didn't really help a whole lot, especially since at first they were believed to have been sent to the wrong location. But even if they had tried to get ahead of it, they had hoped that, since it was headed right for the river, it would become a natural barrier. However, lumber yards and warehouses lined both sides of the river, and when it actually jumped the river, it met up with the south side gas works, and then when it jumped back, it caught onto the railway car carrying kerosene. The majority of the city's homes, businesses, bridges, sidewalks, and even roads were made from wood, 
Add to that the extremely flammable tar and shingled roofs, and an earlier drought made it easy for embers to hop from one building to the next in a matter of moments. The firefighters worked tirelessly to try and combat the blaze, but when the city's waterworks building caught fire, the water mains dried up and there was nothing anyone else could do. Luckily, thankfully, on the evening of October 9th, it started to rain, and that helped to cool the fire. It had just about run out of things to engulf and finally began to burn itself out. The embers, however, were still hot and continued to burn unchecked for days. Catherine O'Leary and her husband, Patrick, came to the United States from Cary, Ireland. He fought on the Union side of the Civil War, and when it was over, they moved with their five children to Chicago. They purchased a house and barn, and according to her testimony, she was considered successful, owning six cows, a horse, and a wagon. She was an immigrant who was working hard to offer a better life for her children. Both the O'Leary parents could not read or write, but were able to send two of their children to a private academy. But after the fire and one newspaper headline, Mrs. O'Leary's life would be changed forever. Before the embers had even cooled, the Chicago Evening Journal reported that, quote, the fire broke out on the corner of DeCoven and 12th Streets about 9 o'clock on Sunday evening, being caused by a cow kicking over a lamp in a stable in which a woman was milking, end quote. Even though the investigation would clear Mrs. O'Leary and her cow of any wrongdoing, the press would not let it go. They fabricated quotes, drawings, and made up details to bend the stories to their purposes. They used their press to inflame the prejudices against the Irish and the Catholics, and the stories became set in stone. Every year, on the anniversary of the fire, her life would turn upside down. Reporters would bang on her door, wanting a new angle for this year's anniversary story. A few years after the fire, the O'Learys moved further away from the buzz of the city, and Catherine became a recluse. She only left her house for necessary things. Her husband died in 1894, and she died 11 years later from pneumonia. In 1997, more than 100 years after her death, the city would officially exonerate her of any wrongdoing and accusations. And yet, the damage is done. Even today, many still believe and are taught that Mrs. O'Leary started the Chicago Fire of 1871. And even though many investigations took place to pinpoint the actual cause of the genesis of the fire, the truth is still unknown. Thanks to the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1861, Paul Revere was immortalized in the American history books. And thanks to others, including the author of Little Women, Louisa May Alcott, Children across America can tell you who Paul Revere is, and having taken turns being the stealthy patriot riding through the town, warning of the attacks of the British, shouting, The British are coming! The British are coming! As much as I love that children know their American history, I'd love it even more if it was correct. It's far less exciting than the children's games, I'm afraid, because the entire purpose of Paul Revere was to be stealthy. Quiet not to cause attention to himself. 
so he was definitely not shouting and riding through the countryside. He did, however, along with two other writers beside him, William Doss and Samuel Prescott, go through each town, tapping on doors to alert the village to prepare for arms. In fact, in the documented testimony of William Monroe of Lexington, he reported, quote, About midnight, Colonel Paul Revere rode up and requested admittance. I told him the family had just retired and had requested that they might not be disturbed by any noise about the house. Noise, said he, you'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming out. We then permitted him to pass, end quote. Many of the residents of the On the Verge of Being America still thought of themselves as British, and they were not yet Americans, so it wouldn't have made sense to shout out that the British were coming, for obvious reasons. Plus, contrary to the historical poem, it was not solely his job. There were about 40 men assigned to this task to spread out after the first signs of movement from the troops was spotted and alert the powers that be. In my research about this topic, I stumbled on another documented quote from this same night by the young fiancé of John Hancock, Dolly Scott. She and a large party were dining with the Hancocks, and among those were also Samuel Adams. When Paul Revere knocked on their door, as a sign to give them warning, Miss Dolly shared this, quote, They were just sitting down to dinner when in came a man from Lexington, whose house was upon the main road, and who cleared out, leaving his wife and family at home as soon as he saw the British bayonets glistening as they descended the hills on their return from Concord. Half frightened to death, he exclaimed, The British are coming, the British are coming, my wife's in eternity now. Mr. H. and Mr. Adams, supposing the British troops were at hand, went into the swamp and stayed till the alarm was over. End quote. <sighs> you know, you always want to imagine our forefathers being brave in battle and not hiding out in a swamp. While the history books may turn them into great heroes, leave it to the real people to report the real story. In the case of this retelling of events of that fateful night of April 1775, she didn't tell the story until 1822 to a man named Sumner who jotted down her notes. But at that time, it would make sense for her to then, 1822, to call the troops British, but at the time they would have been called the Regulars, or British Regulars. During his lifetime, Paul Revere was not known as a good soldier, or leader for that matter. In 1779, British were attempting to set up a fort in what is now Castine, Maine. Revere's job was to intercept the small number of troops to prevent it from taking hold. But Revere did not move forward in a timely manner, and the British were able to send in reinforcements, causing his command to have to retreat. He was charged with cowardice and insubordination, was court-martialed and dismissed from the militia. He was eventually acquitted in 1782, but the damage had already been done. He did go on to make a name for himself in the copper industry. He opened a hardware store that expanded into the first rolling copper mill in the United States, providing materials for the USS Constitution, which is one of the world's oldest floating commissioned naval bases, and he is known for his cannons, bolts and spikes, and church bells. 
one that still rings every Sunday in Boston's King Chapel. But today, you might be more familiar with his copper-based cookware. Revere Copperware Products, Inc. was created in 1801 in Canton, Massachusetts. His son, one of 16 children, successfully merged his father's company to become Revere Copper and Brass, who, in addition to Revereware pots and pans, also helped create the copper nickel composite coins to replace silver coins in 1964. The plant has since been bought and sold a few times, but its legacy remains, as does its history of its famous creator. Let's go back to the railroad for just a moment. Now this next story is often told as a folklore tall tale, usually meaning it's a great story, has a moral, could be based on true facts or people, but is usually not true. I'm here to tell you the story of John Henry. The story goes that he stood over seven feet tall and has arms the size of tree trunks. Okay, see? We're already off to a rough start. Those are false. The real John Henry, and there was a real John Henry, stood just under six feet. His arms may not have had the girth of an oak, but they were strong and solid and true. He needed a job to provide for his family, so he went to the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. Word had spread that the company was giving out plots of land for pay. If the railroad track could reach a specific point by a specific time. The CNO Railroad was laying track from the Virginia border through the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia to the Ohio River, and their main source of rain railroad men were the freed slaves and the newly immigrated Irish. The land was literally carved away by hand with the use of explosives, horses, and mules, but all done by hand. The monumental undertaking took three long years to dig and grade the rail beds, lay the track, blast and pick away mountains to create tunnels and building bridges strong enough for the new iron horses to pass over water or gorges. John Henry's story was the epic battle of man versus machine. The new machinery was threatening to take away the jobs of all the hard-working men who had already spent their blood, sweat, and tears to this point to only have it taken away. The railroad team challenged the newfangled steam engine to a contest at the Great Bend Tunnel, with John Henry leading the way. The workers in the machine worked side by side to get through the mountains. To break through, they had to spike deep into the solid rock then their partner, who was called a shaker, who was very trusting, would pivot the triangular spike so he could hit it again. By the end of the race, the human team tunneled and laid 14 feet of track, and the machine, only 9. How was it possible? Well, the machine, first of all, was new, and no one really knew what all it could do, and what it couldn't do. But because of the human element that worked smoothly and had a rhythm in place, and by subtly manipulating the spike, allowing the rock dust to be removed, it really was a disadvantage to the shiny new competitor. With the machine, it just had blades that spun in a circle. 
They would get overheated, dull, and the rock dust would just clog the blades. John Henry led his men to victory and saved their jobs and became a legend. A few tidbits I couldn't find as solid truths were, 1. He carried his own hammer. The story goes that he forged it himself, being a former blacksmith, from the chains that used to bind him as a slave to remind him that no man would ever chain him again. 2. He may or may not have died at the completion of the contest. Some say that he died that day or a few days later because of the intense exertion to his body, and the John Henry Park even has a burial plaque where they believe he might have been buried. But other sources say that he went on to live a long life and farmed his land. Still other sources say that he died from his lungs filling up with rock dust. Silicosis was a high-ranking cause of death for railroad workers. Number three. Some versions say that he did the entire competition by himself, all the manual labor with the exception of his shaker, and others say that there was a team to help lay the track and place the iron so he could just concentrate on swinging. And number four, stories conflict saying that he was a freed slave working for himself, but other records say that he was loaned out by the Virginia State Penitentiary. Their records have a John Henry on file that was arrested for stealing from a grocery store and sentenced for 10 years. These records also indicate that when he died, which there is no date, that he was buried there. They have no record of him after 1874. History can be sketchy sometimes. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Okay, now you. Fact or fiction? This next historical figure was born with the name of John Chapman in 1774. His claim to fame was that he was a little off. In fact, the Native Americans he encountered along his journeys didn't really bother him much, believing that he was a bit (laughs) touched. He dressed in ragged clothes, no shoes, wore a mush pot on his head, and carried an old coffee sack filled with seeds. John Chapman was better known as Johnny Appleseed. For his strange appearance, he managed to do a lot of good in the world, and all the while, he was a shrewd businessman. It was the age of the western frontier. People were heading west, expanding out to new lands, claiming more territories, which was encouraged by the government, so much so that the land expansion would promise plots of land to people who would agree to build fruit orchards on their land, which was considered, at the time, an investment, and people would become more likely to stay. This sounded like a business opportunity for John Chapman. With an uncanny knack of anticipating which direction the pioneers would choose to settle, he was quick to make his way out west first, stopping every once in a while to plant an apple orchard. He would stay there and cultivate his apple trees just long enough that he felt they would survive, and then he would leave it in the care of someone else and move on. 
Just the act of planting his tree orchards made the land his property. And by planting in several places, he had claimed land all across the Midwest. Now, here's where the business propositions came in. These new families that were heading out west, some were actually required to plant orchards in order to receive the land for free. But others would just need a source of food, and apples could definitely supply that as well. Johnny was there with the trees, at the ready for them to get started. He would sometimes swing back around to help the new settlers learn how to plant and take care of their new trees. If they didn't have money to pay him, sometimes he would let them pay later, barter with them, or even gift them. These apples might not be the ones you're thinking of. These are not the sweet, juicy apples used for baking or just snacking. No, these apples were used for making cider or brandy. They were smaller and harder and had a little bit more of a bitter side. When Johnny first started, he created his inventory by collecting the seeds outside of cider mills from where he grew up. Cider was a very important staple at that time. I covered this a bit more in episode 29 about moonshine, so if you want to check that out. But for now, here's just a quick backstory. The water at the time was literally unsafe to drink and unpredictable, so most families relied on cider as their main beverage. Cider apples could also be used to make cider vinegar, which would be used in food preservation. This one additive had equipped the settlers to make it through harsh Midwestern winters having enough food to eat. Not only for their own needs, a family that had cider apples could use them as money. A lot of bartering was done for cider as well as the raw apples, so these orchards were an investment in more ways than one. The temperance movement, however, also touched on in episode 29, grew to large numbers and when prohibition became legal, all of the cider tree orchards were destroyed. This was past Johnny Appleseed's lifetime, but it was his life's work, gone, gone, because they were worried that people would use them to make the now illegal substance. They destroyed heirloom varieties that had matured since the colonial era. Johnny Appleseed was a follower of the Church of New Jerusalem. Their main belief was that man could grow a closer relationship with God through nature and living a simplistic life. He wore the clothes on his back, and the story goes that he came across some settlers who didn't have shoes of his own, so he gave them the pair on his feet and just never bought another pair. He took his natural lifestyle to the extremes, according to the times, he became a vegetarian. He would purchase animals that were sick or wounded and tried to heal them. He would free animals from traps and tend to their wounds. He was a friend to all who crossed his path, man or beast. Johnny Appleseed never married, being convinced that he would never find an earthly woman who could match his simplistic lifestyle and embrace his purity. So he decided that he would just wait until he got to heaven instead. His religious beliefs also prevented him from grafting his new trees. Grafting is a process that allows you to create apples that are identical to their parent trees. But by refusing to harm his trees, he would accidentally create several new varieties of apples 
and these species of apples would be able to adapt and grow and thrive in their new environment as it changed along his travels. During one of his visits back to a seasoned orchard, he went about his work, but as evening fell he went to a friend's home, a William Worth, to stay the night. He was feeling under the weather and only requested some bread and milk for his dinner. That night he read his Bible, he lay down to sleep, and never woke up. It was March 11, 1845, and he was 70 years old. At his death, it's said that he owned over 1,200 acres of land covered by over 15,000 trees. They have said that he probably had even more land, but wasn't the best at keeping track. But what he did have, he left to his sister. A newspaper article announced his death by saying, quote, Thus died one of the memorable men of pioneer times, who never inflicted pain or knew an enemy, a man of strange habits, in whom there dwelt a comprehensive love that reached with one hand downward to the lowest forms of life, and with the other upward to the very throne of God, a laboring, self-denying benefactor of his race. End quote. It's a face that we've all come to recognize, and it stands for our patriotic beliefs and pride. His name dates back to before the War of 1812, when the soldiers would receive their rations and supplies. The barrels would be stamped with the letters U.S., standing, of course, for United States. But the boys fighting gave thanks and dragged a toast to their Uncle Sam that sent them their food. It wasn't until the 1830s that the American public had a face to put with the name, but it was in the 1870s that locked down the likeness of Uncle Sam by artist and political cartoonist Thomas Nast, drew him with a whiskered chin, wearing a top hat and striped pants. Building on Nast's work, James Montgomery Flagg created the version of Uncle Sam that we are most familiar with today. He created it to encourage recruitment for World War I, with the father of the nation frowning and pointing his finger at the audience, saying, I want you for the U.S. Army. It was repeated again for World War II. As for there being a real-life Uncle Sam, well, that depends. There was a story that a Samuel Wilson from Troy, New York, who worked for the company that supplied barrels of beef to the army during the War of 1812 was the guy, but there's not a lot of proof behind it. However, the local newspaper picked up on the story and ran with it. Not too many believe that the name was based on this man. Even with that being said, in 1961, Congress recognized Samuel Wilson as, quote, the progenitor of America's national symbol of Uncle Sam, end quote. Samuel Wilson died in 1854 in his hometown of Troy, New York, that now calls itself the home of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. It's what we were taught in school. And probably, like many of you, I never even thought to question it. 
If someone were to ask me who made the first flag of the United States of America, I would say Betsy Ross. All of my life I was told that, and my Saturday morning cartoons confirmed it. America History Rocks says so. But now, my Saturday morning education may not have been entirely accurate. Facts. Betsy Ross did make flags. She was an experienced upholsterer by trade. Fact. She was acquainted with the leader of the Congressional Army, George Washington. It is documented that she and George attended the same church and their pews were across the aisle from one another. In those days, you had assigned seating. Fact. There is no documentation, no paper trail, no bill of sale, no drawings, no journal entries, no newspaper reportings, no letters, no nothing that says Betsy Ross created or sewed the American flag. The only input she had on the entire subject is that she recommended that a five-point star instead of a six-point star be used because they were easier to cut and sew. After her third husband passed away and Betsy Ross had to give up her upholstery business, she left her Quaker home to move in with her daughter Susanna in Philadelphia. She died on January 30th in 1836 at the age of 84. In 1870, her grandson, William Canby, presented his findings to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. His theory was that George Washington, Robert Morris, and Betsy Ross's husband's late uncle, George Ross, allegedly asked her to make a new flag for the new nation. Everything at that time was still very hush-hush. She apparently said yes and had the first flag completed in a month, and her grandson said that she went on to design several flags for the country's future. The affidavits from the family members attest to the time frames that she was alive and that she knew George Washington and George Ross, which of course she did. He was family. William Canby's account goes only as far back as an aunt from 20 years after Betsy's death. Once again, before researching the facts, the press of the day needed a good story for the 100th anniversary of the Revolutionary War. So, in 1876, several national journalists broke the story of Betsy Ross and the flag, laying the foundation, and then, by 1909, William Canby's brother and nephew published a book called The Evolution of the Flag, and that pretty much locked it down. After reading the affidavit written by Canby to the board, even though he says a lot of words, even he inadvertently admits that there is nothing written or documented with his grandmother's name. Unlike the other flags that had been made at that time, they all have their maker's name signed on them. So to me, this story is a wash. I'm sorry that I don't have more evidence to put before you, but as of right now, I guess you can continue to believe what you have always believed about the maker of the very first flag. Or, you can let these new facts that I've dug up for you keep you awake at night like it had me wondering, if she didn't sew it, who did? Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. I hope you'll join me again next week for some new adventures. 
If you wouldn't mind leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple, that would be really awesome. It helps me to push the podcast up in the ratings so it can be introduced to new listeners, and your help with that is greatly appreciated. And if you're on the social and want to come and hang out at the Bag of Bones podcast on Facebook, I'll meet you there. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.